So we've all now watched all 10 episodes of, uh, what's it called again? (laughs) 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 Sorry, let's try it again. You can't prove it. You got nothing legit. Staircase After Show Special, Chapter 1, Crime or Accident. Hi, I'm Emily Tamman. Hi, I'm Michael Spratt. This is an exciting new endeavor for us. Back to the future all over again. It is. This is. is. I'm so, so excited because I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Uh, to our regular Docket listeners, we're going to be taking a small detour hiatus from our regular scheduled programming and um, presenting a episode-by-episode episode debrief of the Netflix docu-series The Staircase. Um, very similar for those who were listening back then to the episode-by-episode episode analysis we did of Netflix's Making a Murderer. I'm super excited to be doing this. It's something that you've been talking about for a long time, Emily. I've been talking about it for a while because back when we did our podcast on Making a Murderer, our friend uh, John Hale uh, reached out to me and told me about this series, The Staircase, but at the time it was actually very difficult to find it anywhere to watch and he actually um, uh, lent it to me on a little USB thingy. Pirated. I mean, I'm not going to say that. I don't know whether it was just borrowed from a lawful source or otherwise. It's not really for me to say or to question. That's what we call willful blindness. I may have been willfully blind in that regard. But so I watched it. I devoured it. I was so into it. And I remember saying to you at the time, we should do a podcast about this. The problem was that at the time, because it was so difficult to find, it just seemed like, what's the point? Because no one's going to be able to watch it anyway. But was I ever thrilled to find that The Staircase had been released on Netflix, and not only has it been released, but it's been released with a couple of new episodes that I haven't even seen yet. So with all that being said, those who've been listening to The Docket know what we're about. Those who listen to our special series on Making a Murderer know what we're about. But for anyone who might be listening for the first time because of an interest you have in The Staircase, thought we would just take like a quick two seconds to give a brief introduction um, I've given you the kind of why we're doing this, but maybe we can share a bit about our backgrounds um, that we bring to this uh, podcast. So my name is Michael Spratt. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I practice in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and I've been practicing criminal law for over a decade now. And I'm a partner at uh, the boutique criminal firm of Abergel Goldstein and Partners. We only do criminal defense work. That's all I do. And I defend really anyone, um, people charged with theft, people charged with assaults, with sexual assaults, and with murder. So these are cases that uh, I have experience in. And I'm really looking forward to sort of taking a deep dive into the staircase because, you know, I don't think we're going to try to spoil things because we're going to go episode by episode. But many of my clients are impoverished or marginalized and usually aren't really well funded. Um, like uh, the defense in this case. So it's going to be really interesting to compare not only the American context to the Canadian context and look at, you know, what wealth and privilege can bring to uh, to defense, um, but also compare, you know, what we see um, 
on, on the screen, which is an edited version of real life to what actually happens in real life. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, my name's Emily Tamman. I uh, am also a criminal lawyer, although I have had a more um, diverse career, if I could put it that way, in the sense that I've done a couple of different things. I have worked uh, as a judicial law clerk at the Ontario Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada at the very start of my career. Um, I then worked for about eight years as a federal crown prosecutor. So for our American listeners, that would be akin to um, a, a district attorney. Uh, the federal crown prosecutes primarily drug offenses, but also certain white collar offenses. So I prosecuted tax evasion and customs offenses and environmental offenses, uh, a pretty diverse range, but always anchored in the criminal law. Um, I've been involved in politics. I left my job as a crown prosecutor to uh, run as a candidate in a federal election. Um, and having not been successful in that endeavor, uh, moved over and started teaching in the law faculty at the University of Ottawa, uh, which is what I've been doing for the last two years, where I've taught uh, first year criminal law and an advanced criminal evidence course. So we come at our analysis um, of the staircase as Netflix fans <laughs> and um, a defense lawyer and former prosecutor um, with a very particular experience to bring to bear on our analysis of the show. Um, this is not intended to be uh, for a lawyer's only audience by any means. If anything, we're hoping to give our lay listeners uh, our legal perspective. Um, what I think we both found really interesting when we did this uh, for Making a Murderer was one of the challenges that we had was sometimes attempting to delineate what was just simply a routine difference between how criminal trials proceed in Canada versus the U.S. on the one hand, and what was, on the other hand, kind of like very unusual departures from the norm, even for an American trial, right? And so um, we were very fortunate to um, have the experience in the course of our Making a Murderer podcast to interview um, Stephen Avery's defense lawyers, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting, who came on the podcast more than once. We actually got to meet them in person and chat with them at an event they did in Toronto. And we found that really helpful because they were able to help us distinguish between, you know, what's normal for the U.S. And just an example of that that we found striking in Making a Murderer was the role that the media played and how much um, information was provided to the media in the course of the trial. And they were able to help us understand that although, yes, um, the media tends to get more and do more in criminal trials in the U.S. than is maybe what we're used to in Canada, it was also unusual for that case. So we're really, really, really hopeful um, that we'll get a chance to speak to um, some of the people that were involved in the Michael Peterson case as well. Yeah, David Rudolph, you'll be speaking to us one way or another. <laughs> like Even or if I have to get arrested and hire you to defend me, <laughs> you will be speaking with us. But uh, I mean, I think that it's uh, going to be interesting looking at this from uh, a bit of a Canadian perspective. And for our non-Canadian listeners, and I hear there are dozens of you, um, <laughs> you will forgive us, I hope, because I am going to call the prosecution the crown um, every single time. You do that. I do that. And even when I'm not doing it on purpose, I still do it because that's what we call them in Canada. And you'll forgive me if I point out all the things that seem so weird about American trials, like cameras in the courtrooms, lawyers sitting down when they're asking questions, lawyers not, you know, in gowns and tabs and, and robes and things like that. So uh, we'll try not to get sort of lost in this like vast cultural divide between <laughs> Canada and the United States. 
Um, but don't you feel, sorry to cut you off, but don't you feel like when you l- watch, for example, David um, Rudolph, like he could be any defense lawyer that we know? Like there, there's there's certain similarities in terms of, I mean, it's different, you know, in the sense of, you know, for example, how well resourced he is in the case, but just the way, the way he talks about his role as a defense lawyer, the way he approaches the case, the way he does his cross-examinations, like, yes, he's sitting and not standing, but um, despite these kind of superficial differences, I think the similarities are, are you know, far greater than any differences. Yeah, and I mean, we'll talk a bit about some specific examples when we get into some of the courtroom episodes, but sometimes when when uh, David's asking questions of, you know, the uh, the Crown's experts or um, other witnesses, I know exactly where he's going before he goes there. I've done that sort of cross-examination before. He's asking sort of the same questions. And... I mean, one of the hard parts is we only get small bits of the courtroom stuff. I could watch it for hours. Um, But, I mean, it seems, you know, exactly like the lawyering that that I do and and that I see. I will say this, and I I don't want to spoil things as we go forward because we're going to try to keep each sort of podcast to, to each episode. Yeah, and we'll, there will be spoilers in relation to any given episode in the sense that we're going to talk in detail about the episode that we're talking about, but we will not be spoiling future episodes. I will say this. At the beginning, um, you know, we hear a, a clip from uh, David Rudolph about sort of the role of defense counsel. And actually, let's play that uh, now. And you'll also forgive us, makers of the staircase. We're going to steal your content, and I think it's uh, other lawyers will say it's like fair use or some exception like that. It's right? Clippage. It's clippage. We're criminal it's lawyers. We don't know about copyright. So here's Rudolph on the, the role of defense lawyers. It always seemed to me that the greatest threat to our freedoms came not from people who committed crimes, but from the way the government tends to respond to that uh, and the way the government tends to take on power for itself uh, almost as though there's a vacuum that someone has to fill and the government's going to fill it. And so uh, for me, being in the role of a criminal defense lawyer uh, is being in the role of a person who can do at least a little bit to hold back some of the government excesses to, to make sure that we don't lose our freedoms in an effort to protect them. In Michael's case, uh, there is no doubt in my mind that he is not guilty of this. And so for me, being able to help him establish his innocence is really what is moving me at this point. So, I mean, that's sort of very similar to my view about, you know, defense lawyers as you know, the bulwark between this powerful state and the often, even when you're very well resourced as as Peterson is, an accused who is always in not the same position of power as a state just by virtue that the state can do many things that individuals can't, like take away your liberty and, and prosecute you. But I was not in love with him in this first episode, but that changed as we went on. So I don't know if it's just my personality that I don't like new people and it takes me a while to warm up to people. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly as we move forward in the episodes, um, I see more and more of myself in him and more and more of the lawyers that I know in him. And, you know, he is a very good lawyer. 
by by all accounts according to this show at least yeah no there's there's no doubt about that so which is which is also you know why i would be really interested to get a chance to chat with him just about you know the experience of this case and everything else so um for people who have not previously listened to the docket our our usual um content is we talk about criminal cases and politics um you know current events that are unfolding in canada basically um but we're going to be dedicating the next several episodes um to an episode by episode debrief of the staircase um we had put a bit of a call out to some of our listeners about format and should we do a truncated version i think what we've come around to is that we're just going to take the time that it takes for each episode some will be a bit shorter some will be a bit longer this one has a bit of setup the episode itself doesn't have a ton a ton of content um and we will be taking the time in some of the future episodes when there are actual legal issues in relation to for example you know the admissibility of prior alleged discreditable conduct like would that be admissible here do we feel that it should be admissible there so that that might take a bit more setup to give some of the legal background um but so that's what we're going to be doing so um why don't we just get started and chat a little bit about episode one Durham police this morning are investigating the death of a prominent city resident. The officers were called early this morning to the home of Nortel executive Kathleen Peterson, who was found dead in her Forest Hills mansion after apparently falling down the stairs. Kathleen Peterson's husband is novelist Michael Peterson, well known for his books on the Vietnam War. He is also a former columnist for the Durham Herald Sun and ran an unsuccessful mayoral campaign in 1999. Durham police have refused additional comment on the death. The episode opens up with sort of a walkthrough of the house by by Peterson and one of the really striking things here is how much access the, the documentary filmmakers have to the prosecution and the defense as the case is unfolding and you know it's not always exactly clear when various things were, were shot but this is a walkthrough in the early stages after his release, I presume, um, by Peterson of his house, of what happened that night. And I'll ask you, Emily, what did you think sort of leading with that? I I mean, my initial response, and I, I mean, I've now watched this episode three times because I had watched it initially, then I've been rewatching it with you, and now we watch it in advance of this evening. And what I certainly recall my initial reaction being was that it, it felt a little detached on Peterson's part. Like the way he, it seems very matter of fact, like almost like it's, you know, the narrator of the film as opposed to the person who actually lived it, which at the time left an impression on me in terms of just how calm that he seemed. Like you, I was I was really intrigued and I would love to know more about how the documentary came to be because it's so early on in the unfolding of the story, which was also a real signature of the Making a Murderer documentary. Um and for us in Canada, where um, cameras aren't allowed in the courtroom, um, it's just so interesting to be able to have this much access early on. And then, of course, like all of the judicial proceedings. But yeah, I think my initial reaction to Michael Peterson and the walkthrough um, was, you know, I don't want to say detached, but just how matter of fact. Now, of course, like you said, we don't know exactly the timing of when that particular part was shot. And I would expect that it was a story by that point that he had told many times already. Um, but that was kind of my initial impression yeah I, I thought so too and then we move from that into a 911 call Durham 911 where's your emergency oh, 1810 Cedar Street please what's wrong my wife had an accident she's still breathing what kind of accident she's still stairs. she's still breathing please come. is she conscious what is she no. conscious no she's not conscious okay. how many stairs did you what? fall down huh? how many stairs? stairs how many stairs 
Calm down, sir. Calm down. No, fifteen twenty. I don't know. Please get somebody here right away. Please. Okay, somebody's me. dispatching the ambulance no. while I ask you questions. It's 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 all It's in Forest Hills. Okay. Please, please. Okay, sir. Sir, somebody else is dispatching the ambulance. Okay, is she awake now? Hello. Hello. So this 911 call sounds like so many 911 calls that I've heard in court. And I mean, in Canada, we've actually been doing um, some studies and some inquiries into the effect that big trials have on jurors and just emotionally and through to their mental health, because it can be a, a very traumatic experience for, for jurors to sort of hear evidence and, and um, sort of experience the courtroom proceedings. And that's led to some problems here. But one of the things that has been said over and over again is that hearing 911 calls is often one of the most traumatic things because it's a sort of a real time like recounting of events as they're raw and fresh usually. Um, and, you know, you can hear the emotion, you can hear the trauma, you can hear, um, you know, panic and you can hear all of that stuff. And I think all of that comes through in this phone call. This doesn't sound like a detached Peterson who just gave a walkthrough of the house. This sounds like someone whose reaction seems completely consistent with someone who's just discovered uh, someone that they love has been in a horrible accident. But this is what, you know, I always struggle with when it comes to these kinds of things, because I agree with you when I listened to it, my first kind of gut reaction to it was, this sounds authentic. Like this sounds how I would expect a person to react, like you just said. But at the same time, we know from our experience and just that um, there is no really normal way to respond to something like this, right? Leaving aside the potential for fabrication. So um, in fact, you know, if you wanted to be one of these slippery prosecutors who always tries to twist things into being consistent with a person's guilt, you might say, well, the fact that it's exactly how we would expect a person to react uh, means that if someone was attempting to feign, you know, emotion, they would act exactly as you would expect them to act, right? So it's really tricky. And I think, you know, one thing that we've learned is that you have to be really careful not to extrapolate too much about, in particular, a person's guilt or innocence based on how they react. So, you know, you'll hear police officers say that when they interviewed a suspect, they seemed really detached, like I just said a moment ago about Michael Peterson. And from that, they they conclude that that's circumstantial evidence of their guilt. And you do have to be just really, really careful about that. But leaving all of that aside, I agree with you. The way he sounded so frantic, the way when he kind of stopped talking, you could almost hear him kind of whimpering in the background. Um, certainly there was nothing about what I heard on the 911 call that sort of was a tick in the box in the guilty in the guilty column, if, if you can think of it that way. Yeah, and I think that it does contrast very well with that opening scene. And it is a pretty good illustration of how um, misleading or sort of noisy in terms of the evidence, demeanor evidence can be. Um, I mean, you pointed out some of the problems with demeanor evidence, but I think it goes beyond that too, especially when we're dealing with um, 
witnesses from different cultural backgrounds, different religions, different parts of the world. Um, demeanor evidence, you know, is can be not as useful as it would otherwise be because um, it's a very individual, it's a very personal thing, and it's very easy to jump to conclusions, and it's very easy to read in what you have brought to the case already. And I think that's the really important thing, because I think you will be able to find countless of examples of, in particular, prosecutors um, saying either a person was too cold or detached on the one hand, but if they're really emotional, it's too over the top, right? Like So there, there's always going to be an effort to characterize how a person responds or a person's demeanor in a way that's consistent with your pre-existing theory of the case, if I can put it that way. But anyway, I mean, the bottom line is I did feel that it was, um, it, it struck me as sounding, you know, not raising any particular suspicion. And then after the 911 call, we move into sort of an introduction to the police and the prosecution team. And we see a feature that is very common in police investigations. Um, and that's tunnel vision. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear, both from what we heard from Detective Art Holland, uh, what we heard from the DA, Jim Harden, um, was that they focused in right away, basically, on Michael Peterson as a suspect. So while Peterson called 911 seeking, you know, emergency assistance for an accident, um, it was clear that, um, you know, almost immediately uh, this was at least a kind of open criminal investigation. And I think I, I thought it was interesting because um, there was a, a quote that we heard from David Rudolph, um, Michael Peterson's lawyer, where he said, uh, For us, uh, if in fact the police are right that this was not a fall, that should be the beginning of the investigation, not the end of the investigation. But it did seem largely based on the volume of blood um, that without any necessary particular expertise on, you know, blood volume loss and whatever, that the detective and the DA concluded that this, the, the volume of blood was not consistent with a fall. When I first entered the house, uh, I noticed a, um, what appeared to be two legs uh, kind of sticking out of a doorway or hallway uh, to my left. And uh, once uh, I approached uh, the victim, there was just a very abundant amount of, of, of blood on her, on the floor, on the floor, on the walls um, that just was not uh, consistent with somebody falling down the steps. Yeah, that was a, a quote from the police officer. And I mean, he's obviously not an expert in that. And that's... Uh, a small example of sort of the tunnel vision and, and fitting the evidence into your preconceived narrative. Now, I will say this, when police respond to a scene like this, and we'll talk about this scene in, in a minute, but when police respond to a scene like this, I don't think there's anything inappropriate about making sure that they have control over the witnesses, that they make sure that witnesses don't contaminate each other's version of events. And I think that a degree of suspicion on the people who were in the house late at night when the person died in a situation like this probably isn't unwarranted. But this is sort of gets the ball rolling down the hill. And we see this later on in other episodes, and we'll talk about it, where police fit pieces of evidence into their pre-existing theory. So instead of seeing a piece of evidence, looking at all the different conclusions that could lead to, um, and then, you know, engaging in sort of a scientific method, um, they look at the piece of evidence and 
automatically jump to the conclusion that it sort of fits their theory or, or fit it into the, their, their pre-existing theory. Yeah. And I think in much the same way that you've acknowledged that, you know, there's nothing inappropriate about, you know, securing the scene. And, you know, of course, you're going to keep an eye on the guy that's the one who called 911 and was home alone with the deceased when the either accident or murder happened. Um, I would also say, you know, I would have shared, I think, the um, police's questions regarding the scene. I mean, when you do look at the the photographic images that are shown in the documentary of um, Kathleen Peterson at the bottom of the stairs in a very contorted position with an enormous amount of not only pooled blood, but blood on the walls and blood on the stairs. Like, it, it doesn't look like, you know, to my untrained eye as someone who fell down the stairs. And yet, I've never seen someone fall down the stairs and die. So, you know, what to to result in someone's death, it has to be a particularly traumatic fall, I would think. So all that to say, you know, it doesn't surprise me, nor do I think it's inappropriate that the, you know, first responders on the scene reviewing the scene with some suspicion and not sort of just saying, well, it looks like someone fell down the stairs and it was an accident. Good day to you all. Um, I think you're right to say that it's not so much how they acted in that moment, but how it sort of set in motion a chain of events that that led to quite a, what would seem to have been an investigation that was mired with tunnel vision. And I mean, some of this evidence the police might not have had or have, um, you know, been able to process at that time. But there are some troubling features that, you know, a defense team is going to have to deal with here. There's the unusual situation of someone falling down the stairs and dying. Um, There's the unusual situation of that much blood. And that's not to say unusual situations don't happen. Um, Usually it is sort of the odd or the rare situation that leads someone to, to criminal court or that leads to an accident like this. But the defense team is going to have to explain how someone can fall down the stairs and receive those injuries, how that much blood, um, it's possible to to deposit that much blood from that sort of accident. They're going to have to deal with um, the statements that were made by Peterson in that 911 call because those are all admissible statements, his 911 phone call. Mm -hmm. And he gives some information there that she was, you know, alive when he came to her and that, you know, she died before in his arms before the the ambulance came. They're going to have to deal with that sort of timing of death. And then um, we hear that the blood is dry at the scene, which may indicate that some period of time has passed. And how does that jive with her still bleeding? And how does that jive with fresh injuries? And how does how long does it take that much blood to dry? They're going to have to explain that as well. And also there's one thing that um, that Peterson's daughters said that sort of struck me in this episode. Um, and these are um, his adopted daughters, uh, Martha and Margaret. And one of them said that, you know, one of the first things that Peterson said when she got to the house in the immediate aftermath of this was, I didn't kill her. Yeah, I didn't do this. I didn't do yeah. it. And... That seems sort of odd as well. Perhaps Peterson was on edge because the police were following him around and asking him some questions and he was in shock. And it's the natural conclusion that maybe other people jump to. But I don't know if, I don't know, telling your daughter in that situation, if that's sort of the first thing that would be through your head, that's something that, that... if it's introduced into evidence, is something that would need to be explained too. Well, and that's a perfect example where you can take a statement like that and you can say, 
almost equally on two sides of a coin. It's what you would think a guilty person would say and it's what you'd think an innocent person would say, right? And I think I would tend to the the theory that you just laid out um, in the latter part of your what you said, which was that because also in the interview with his son, Todd, Todd also says like, it was very clear from the very beginning that this was a police investigation. And um, he said that they, they felt overwhelmingly like there was suspicion and that, you know, they were being treated as suspects. So in that regard, I don't find it, it that strange, but I'm just trying to also wrap my head around like that scene, right? Like I, and I'm not one part that I don't fully get out of this episode is did the, were the kids all living at home? Were they called to the scene because this had happened? Were they all out late and they were just coming home? Cause it, I, it wasn't totally clear. Like in the interview with Margaret and Martha, they talk about, you know, coming up the road and then seeing the police tape. But I, I didn't quite have my head wrapped around like were they expecting to that something had happened or not I don't it know it seems like quite a dynamic family situation it's with very lots interesting, of moving parts yes a very interesting um uh sort of composite family um five kids in total um the kind of you know there's divorce there's pre-existing kids but then there's adoption like it's it's a very interesting and dynamic family um and in particular like for these young women Margaret and Martha who um talk about Kathleen they call her mom you know this they've so and they talk about these kind of dual burdens of like their father is being um investigated for murder and their mother has just died Kathleen was essentially the third mother figure in their lives right they had their biological mother who died and uh, following which they were adopted by Michael Peterson and his ex-wife Patty um and then in Germany and then they moved to the U.S. with Patty with uh with Michael who then married Kathleen so I mean the really intense upheaval that all of these young people had faced And, and one thing that you and I were reflecting on a little bit was um their reaction to all of this and how unwaveringly in support of their father that they are yeah which is I think something important to talk about as well because um i mean just uh, we were talking just before that about you know some of the things that defense is going to have to explain and there's i think a key difference in sort of defense strategy and defense tactics that actually i i think um uh the lawyer david rudolph does a pretty good job of of laying out throughout the series there's sort of legal things that you have to deal with but then there's also explaining a case to a bunch of lay people and telling a story and sometimes you're right when you have that reaction that that um peterson had at the scene when he's saying you know i didn't do this i didn't kill her legally you're right that could go one way or the other but you're also when you're crafting a defense you're telling a story and there's certain things although you don't have a legal burden to prove anything there sometimes is sort of a burden in terms of storytelling to make sure that you know, you give the correct path or you, you make it easier for jurors to, you know, accept that the Crown hasn't proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's one of the things that um, often when we're dealing with the reaction of the family and the support of the family is something that can be very dangerous when it comes to looking at um, how people viewed the relationship, how people viewed him, his character. And we'll talk about character evidence, um, I think, in the next episode. But it's too easy sometimes to say, no one saw a problem in this relationship. He seemed like a great guy. I would never expect him to do any of this. Because what we know and what jurors, I think, are are, are becoming more aware of, especially in the Me Too movement, 
you never hear an allegation against a famous Hollywood celebrity or or um, even friends of your own who you know you find out are getting a divorce. How many times have have you heard things like that and thought, oh my gosh, it's the last person I ever thought. I even knew him and he seemed like a great guy. It seemed like a perfect marriage and they were good friends of ours. How could it fall apart? You never know what happens. And so I think when you're relying on evidence about he's a great guy, the marriage was perfect, he could never have done that. I think that there's a danger of relying on that too much because I don't know that juries actually put a lot of weight into that evidence and it certainly opens up a lot of legal doors at least in Canada for how the crown can respond to rebut that sort of argument. No, I think you're right. I mean, in cases of domestic violence, it's very very common to hear people say, you know, or in, in particular in these um, you know, murder suicide cases or where there's domestic violence that leads to a death and you you hear people say like he seemed like such a good guy, they seemed like such a happy couple, right? You don't know. At the same time, there is a difference between the perception of people that are very removed, like, you know, neighbors who just say, oh, I would see them walking by. They seemed happy on the one hand versus um, at some point there does become a critical mass of people, uh, you know, close family friends, people that are living in the house with them, the the children, whatever, where it's not conclusive, but it's certainly probative that it's, you know, it's a, a circumstantial fact that's worth considering that. There certainly were no overt signs of um, even they often talk about tension, like when the when they're questioning people, when the documentary filmmakers are asking questions, you know, did or when the PI um, Ron Garrett is interviewing the daughters and the sons, like you know, was there tension in the relationship? And there there are certain things that you might expect really intimate friends or family to at least be able to detect, even just with the benefit of hindsight. Um, but uh, anyway, and we'll we'll talk more in future episodes too about. Um, more legal specifics on the presumption of innocence. But you're certainly, you know, obviously 100% right when you say, you know, there's no legal burden on the defense to explain scientifically how the evidence would be consistent with a fall, right? I mean, all the defense doesn't have to do anything at all. In fact, it's even um, a bit of a misstatement when we say all the defense has to do is raise a reasonable doubt. I mean, the the defense doesn't have to do a freaking thing. The reasonable doubt can be there on its face. Um, But the reality and especially in front of a jury, is if you want to raise reasonable doubt by saying this was not a homicide at all, it was a fall, um, you know, you're a lot more likely to be successful in doing that if you can actually put some meat on those bones, right? And some of those decisions you need to make early on and you need to be proactive on. Just looking at some of that character evidence with, you know, family members, his daughters, if you want them sitting in court with your client throughout the whole trial, um, they're not gonna be able to testify. There's orders excluding witnesses. And so if you're gonna call them as character witnesses, then you're gonna have to realize that they're not gonna be sitting there at the beginning of the trial with the accused person because they are witnesses who can't hear the rest of the evidence. And you have to take proactive steps early to make sure that there can be no question that their evidence was tainted or contaminated or that they were led or woodshed about anything. So you have to start making these decisions and think about these things quite early. And this is where we see in this case as well, some of the incredible privilege um, that, uh, that Peterson has here. Because within a month or two, well, I mean, we see right away 
um, of private investigators there on the scene doing interviews. Right uh, at the beginning. Right like at the beginning. A full-time PI on the case. And then within two months, I think it's the the um, the death happens in December of 2001. And then February 2002, we have a scene where around the table, we have the private investigator, a kinetics expert, a blood spatter expert. Um, there is another expert there. And later we see an audio uh, expert recording what you can hear from the pool um, you know from inside and then later we see a jury selection expert so right away we see a whole bunch of experts being brought in um, some of them very early on which is expensive it's time-consuming and it's completely necessary because I mean the longer you wait, the more evidence is degraded, the, the more you're relying on pictures and other people's reports rather than first-to-hand reports, um, witness statements um, and memories fail. And so these are things that you need to be proactive on. These are things that are super expensive and out of reach for almost every single other uh, murder accused, especially if you're um, I guess in the States, if you have, you know, a public defender in Canada, we don't have that. We have a legal aid system, which is a, a better system, but still a system that I can tell you would not approve any of these experts. And so this is sort of like, you know, kid in a candy shop. If I could have one of these people uh, working on a case, I'm usually happy. It's interesting how because Peterson was still in the home, they still have access to the crime scene right they haven't cleaned up the blood so we see this now two months later you have the the various experts like looking at the staircase right they're not like you said they're not relying on just photographs um that were taken by the state's experts i would love to know um and if we get a chance to talk to david rudolph i'd love to ask him um or if we get a chance to talk to michael peterson or if we get a chance to talk I'm just to Michael saying. Peterson uh, or to uh, Thomas Mahar or any of the other people that were involved in the case. But w- what I'm really interested to know is at that February 2002 meeting with the experts, what did they have from the state in terms of what we would call disclosure? So um, that's a pretty short turnaround. Like, you know, as a defense lawyer, you've done murder cases. Like, would you normally expect to have comprehensive disclosure within you know, two months of, the, of your client being charged. And I mean, we might have some witness statements. We probably don't have all reports. video evidence and there's no way in hell that you have expert reports or DNA stuff or anything like that. And it, it just goes to show how proactive they were being because it, the sense that I get from watching this is this was not like, we need to get a blood spatter expert to rebut their blood. Fi-. It's like, we need to be building our own case, right? So this, this is what a, an inc- what you know, as we know, because they they spell out the dollars and cents, right? Over a million dollars on the defense. Um, This is what a well-funded defense gets you. And this is what starts to level the playing field between the state and the the defense. But you were right in the beginning when you said it's never going to be a level, no matter how much money you have as an accused, the state not only has more money, but has more coercive power and just, you know, more of everything else. So all that being said, um, and I think as we continue to watch, we're going to see that, um, you know, money only gets you so much, but it certainly was fascinating to see in such a short timeline, every time that you see a meeting of the defense team, there's a crap ton of people at the table, right? <laughs> it's an expensive, expensive defense. And I mean, when you're looking at sort of this Cadillac service, one of the worst things you can do as a defense lawyer is 
just gear your defense based on what the pros- what the prosecution gives you. It's like response it, like reactive, right? Yeah, than proactive. I mean, in most murder cases, you'll get a box full of disclosure, and you can find you know contradictory witness statements. You can poke hole in their holes in their expert reports, but you're only using what they've given you. If you're not out there talking to your own witnesses, getting your own statements, engaging your own experts early on and producing material and not just responding to and material. And that's objective, right? That's like, here's the stuff, look at it. Not here's what someone else has said about it, but just what do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, like you can have a competent defense that, you know, pokes holes in the Crown's cases, fi- finds, you know, contradictory witness statements, you know, finds the doubt that's there and, and does a good job of exposing that. But if you're properly resourced in both time and money and, and, and you know, expertise man hours you can actually not just respond to material but you can create material and that you know puts the control more in your hands i think that's even more important in a case like this where there appears to have been some tunnel vision because if you're only responding you're only going to be responding within these very narrow parameters and so i think it's it's just really interesting to see a case coming together um as this one did um and then we just get you know a little bit more information about um the family We'll get, I think we'll save our kind of discussion of the little bits that we get about the blood splatter evidence and the the defense theory here because it just gets fleshed out so much more in future episodes. And I think we should kind of talk yeah. about that more unless there's anything else. You no, I think going forward, I mean, I think that we're going to look at um, character evidence in the next episode. We're going to look at um, similar fact evidence in another episode and then we can take a deep dive probably in episode four into some of the expert material and dealing with expert evidence. There is one other thing um, at the end of this episode that as a defense lawyer um, is your dream. And you've touched on it before. And that's having an accused who's out on bail, mm-hmm. um, which is huge. $850,000 bond in this case. Which is also sort of mind boggling because he it seems like Peterson got bail, you know, rather quickly. Um in Canada, it's not money that that guarantees your release. And, you know, most people charged with serious offenses like murder actually don't get bail, even if they don't have a prior criminal record. Um, I don't know if it was just a bond or if there was, you know, other conditions or supervision put on Peterson. But in Canada, if Peterson just came with $850,000 to deposit to the court, he wouldn't be released on, on a murder charge. Canada, we need to have supervision. So that means you need to have sureties, people who act as um, supervisors supervisors for the court, who have a legal obligation to enforce conditions like curfews or like um, no contact orders, making sure that there's good behavior. So it's not about money in Canada. It's about supervision. And in fact, you can't detain someone in Canada just on the basis they don't that they don't have sufficient money to put up, right? Yeah, like, I mean... Don't, I don't think to. I've ever, I, I mean, I very rarely have clients actually deposit money. Usually it's a plan of supervision. So it'd be interesting to know what else was going on. But the one thing you love as a, as a defense lawyer is having a client out on bail. It's probably the most, one of the most important things that happens in the case. That decision um, can really tip the favor one way or the other. Because if your client's out on bail, you can meet them in your office. You can go to their house. You can, they can work and make money what to fund their defense. Um, they can spend more time reviewing things with you. If someone's in jail, you know none of that happens. And of course, when you're in jail, there's also the very coercive pressure um, about 
being incarcerated while you're presumed innocent, and that might induce you into doing things you wouldn't otherwise do, like enter a plea or take a deal. Yeah, no, exactly. So, I mean, I think the the, the takeaway, or one of the big takeaways from this episode is that um, despite the relative positioning of an accused person, Peterson, in this case, appears to have, you know, everything going in his favor that you could hope for, right? He's out on bail. He has the money to hire an experienced defense lawyer. He has the money to hire experts and he has family support, right? He is not really being isolated here, right? Like, I mean, maybe socially, but his family at this point anyway, is 100% behind him, which is also really important because, you know, you talked about the pressure to plead guilty, you know, when you're incarcerated. I would expect a lot of those same pressures are there when you feel completely abandoned by everyone that, you know, you thought loved you kind of thing. And on top of it, you've lost your spouse. So um, he has everything going for him. And yet, as we'll see going forward in the future episodes, it is nonetheless an enormously uphill battle um, for Michael Peterson. And so just imagine if he was a marginalized, racialized individual with no money who couldn't make bail and couldn't afford counsel. And or with mental health issues and an addiction issue and, you know, the the more sort of typical profile of someone who finds himself in Michael Peterson's situation. Yeah, I mean, I think the real takeaway from this first episode is that even if you can imagine the best possible circumstances, it's still David versus Goliath. Yeah, absolutely. So with that... I mean, I'm really looking forward to um, getting out as many of these episodes as we can. We're not even um, finished watching the entire series. We've watched about half or three quarters, um, but we rewatch each episode before we do the podcast. And we're going to do our best to have a more regular release schedule. Twice a week? (laughs) We're going to aim for twice a week. So because I know many of you have probably already binge watched the entire season um, and our our typical schedule tends to be more an episode every two to three to four weeks. So um, certainly we're going to be ambitiously trying to get these out because we're really enjoying it and we hope that you do too. And if you want to get in touch with us, if you want to send us some feedback, where can they find you, Emily? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at... Emily Tamman, that's E-M-I-L-I-E-T-A-M-A-N. And you can find me on Twitter at M Spratt. And you can find this podcast wherever you found it, but you can also rate and review it on iTunes. Um, I know that there's other podcast places. I don't even know if we're there, but we are on iTunes. So leave a comment, leave us a review. Um, it helps us feel good. And that's really all that we ask. It's the least you could do. It's the least you can do. And you can also check out michaelspratt.com, which is where the blog is and where the episodes will also be posted. Yeah, we'll post stuff there. And if there's any other content or anything like that, we'll post things there as well. And I guess we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman and you can follow me on Twitter at mspratt. Thanks for listening. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh.